Greetings, horror fans, and welcome to Joe Kaplan's eerie horror story, When the Night Bells Ring. My name is Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on When the Night Bells Ring, Mads and Winoka discover a mine in the ghost town, but their treacherous descent into its depths leads to a nasty fall down a broken ladder. Ouch. While Mads lies injured, Winoka finds an old diary and reads about the frontier woman's arrival in the town years and years ago. What happened to Lavinia and her family? Lavinia's diary. Later again. I'll write this quickly, for I am filled with relief. Her fever has broken. I woke stiff in my chair at the doctor's rousing to find Sophronia alert, gleaming with sweat by the unstable light of the kerosene lantern. Mama, she said, reaching out for me, and I took her small hand and held it tight until she fell asleep. Just before she drifted off, she said, have we made it to Eden? I told her yes, we had. I did not tell her how very far from Eden this place truly is. In those last few weeks on the trail, I told her we were going to a place of bounty and riches, and she read her Bible and said it must be Eden where we were headed, and I hadn't the heart to tell her otherwise. Those eyes, as blue as the ocean, make a body want to tell her only sweet things. In a while, when the sun begins to rise, I will tell John Henry the news. But for now, I shall let him rest. He has been sleeping hardly at all on the trail, and I fear he is worn nearly as thin as Sophronia. Sometimes I feel as if it is my duty alone to keep this family chugging along like a well-oiled machine. It isn't John's fault. He simply does not notice the things I do. The subtle changes in the children's temperaments when they are tired or falling ill. I knew before she did that Sophronia was not well, by the way she irritably refused food when she must be hungry, and by the dull gleam of her eye as she listlessly watched the forsaken landscape roll by. The flat gray clouds, the strange vistas of scrub and distant twisted rock. John refused to believe it until her skin was hot as a skillet, tears making riverbeds of her cheeks. He was adamant that all would be well. I am not convinced. The people we met on our arrival acted so oddly when we asked about John Henry's brother. As we came into town and set about finding the doctor, a young couple came to our aid. I briefly caught their names, Olive and Chester Blackburn. They brought a jug of water to our wagon, and as I bade Sophronia to drink, I heard John Henry ask them where he might find his brother. He described him, not a very tall man, but stout and robust, with a jovial sort of face and a coarse brown beard with a small white patch just here at the jaw. He called him by name, but they shook their heads and would not look at him. Emery Kane, he said. Please, Emery Kane, he has lived here for more than a year. Surely you must know him. 
The looks on their faces seemed that of alarm, but they only shook their heads and retreated. And now the last of our cattle has perished, as if it had only to see out the rest of the journey before returning to the Lord. Perhaps it is premature of me to take this as a bad sign, but I feel a premonition in my bones, the way I felt Sophronia's illness coming on. Though I know it is colored by our initial experiences, which have not made for the pleasantest start of a new life, already I can feel that something is not right in Virgil, Nevada. August 30th, 1869. Yesterday was too full to write. In the evening, I brought out this book and stared at the blank page, for though I find it calming to sit by the light of a candle and spill the world onto paper, I was paralyzed of thought and washed of language, so I put it away before I could make the slightest mark, and instead held Sophronia's hand and told her fairy tales until she fell asleep. She is stronger, but only just. I shall be glad when I no longer fret at her every labored breath, though a small voice in the corner of my mind asks if I ever will. As soon as my dear one sat up and ate a bit of porridge, John Henry donned his hat and coat, and when I asked where he thought he might be going, he said he was off to see about meeting the mine's owner and securing himself a position. Now, I asked him, right this instant, what could he be thinking of? We are staying with the doctor another night yet, Sophie has not moved from her sickbed while I have been sleeping in a chair beside her, ragged and unkempt. We have nowhere else to stay but our wagon. Our next step must be to file a claim for land and find Emery so that we might stay with him while we build a house. I had believed John Henry would desire to accomplish these important tasks before he set himself to work the mine. Yet he asked me, why did we come here, then, if not for my employment? When I suggested that we must at least see to Sophie right now, he told me, the doctor is seeing to her. If we are to make our home here, we will need to purchase land. And how do you suppose I will do so without a wage? We have nothing. On looking at me, he softened somewhat and became tender. There is no time to waste he said gently, and called me his rabbit's foot, as he does, and reminded me he is not one to sit about idly when there is something he can do to improve the lot of his family. We came here for a reason, and I intend to see it out. These were his exact words as I write them, verbatim, I remind you, diary, that I have a keen memory for language, and I would not quote unless I was sure just what had been said. There is no sense, after all, in writing down speculations. My own mother taught me that. If you are to keep a diary, she said to me once when I was young, and she had discovered my very first little book, in which I'd written quite juvenile poetry, then at least you ought to write an accurate account of your day. I won't have a daughter taken to whimsy, or next thing you'll be writing novels. She is a fair and diplomatic woman, my mother, though I don't see what would be so wrong with writing novels. But here I am, taken to writing about my mother instead of what lies before me, which is riddled with problems. 
First, the matter of where we will stay when Sophie is well enough to leave the doctor's house. For if we cannot find Emery, then where shall we go? When I asked John Henry where he thought his brother might be, he only shrugged as if the matter did not concern him. He is always taken to wild flights of fancy, going wherever the wind blows him. He told me as if this concluded the matter. Yet it is strange to me that he did not write to tell us he was leaving, especially after he told us we should come. Unless perhaps his last transmission arrived after we had already left Boston. But then wouldn't someone in town know of his whereabouts? And what of the way that young couple acted so oddly when J.H. asked after him? They seemed spooked and made as if Emery had never been here at all. Only we know he has been here for a year from his letters. When I asked Dr. Hartsworth what he knew of Emery Kane, the doctor only shook his head and said the name did not ring a bell. But his face blanched the color of flour and he excused himself. There is one thing that I am glad of, and that is the way Dr. Hartsworth has taken Oscar under his wing. The boy wanted to go out and explore his new surroundings, but I was unwilling to allow him to stray far on his own. Thankfully, the doctor has taken him about town and has set him to small chores such as milking his cow. When John Henry returned yesterday evening, he bore triumph in the set of his shoulders. He kissed me on the top of my head the way he does when he is pleased with himself, and set his pipe in his mouth when he sat. I knew the West was a true promised land, he said as he lit his tobacco and began to smoke. You know, Lavinia, there are two sorts of men in this world, the kind of man willing to go out and seek his fortune, and the kind who is content with what he has. Truly the West knows just who ought to hear its siren song, for it is only the seeker who will reap its bountiful rewards. Those are pretty words, I told him, and I suppose you've something you'd like to tell me? John Henry has an aversion to forthrightness, preferring to talk his way around a subject before arriving at the point. I had to needle him to get there sooner, but by and by he did. You are looking at a man employed by the Virgil Consolidated Mining Company, he said at last. He grinned as he puffed on his pipe. It is all coming together just as we'd hoped. Do smile, Lavinia. You needn't fret so. Sophie is getting better all the time. I told him I was very happy for him and inquired if he had asked after Emery at the company. His eyes darkened at once. When John Henry loses his mirth, the dour set of his heavy brows, the long arch of his nose, and the way the corner of his left eye sags as if looking at you sideways, puts him all in darkness. He can transform from a handsome gentleman one moment to a fiend in the next. John Henry told me the man he had spoken with had never heard of him. And this despite what Emery told us, which is that he had been employed by the very same mining company and therefore ought to have been known to them. It's clear, isn't it? John Henry said when I voiced my doubts. Emery hasn't the commitment to stay in one place for very long. Or why else do you think he hasn't found himself a wife yet? I doubt he paused here for more than a day before he was off again, wandering far and wide to avoid stable employment. He's a bad egg, Emery, and probably somewhere's town bummer by now. 
and he has a strange sense of humor indeed. So it seems clear he told us a thumper just to have us on. I couldn't believe it, and I told him just so. But to have us come all this way, merely for a joke, doesn't that seem awfully cruel? The thing you must understand about my brother, Lavinia, is that he cares for no one but himself. When we were children, he would do whatever he pleased, even when his carelessness had us both beaten. Nothing I said could have persuaded him to think of his own brother before he shirked his duties, and not even my father's punishments dissuaded him from doing whatever he had a mind to. I know it may be hard for you to believe, for he has a charming nature that puts him in easy favor, but that is the truth of it. My brother is a son of a bitch, only he is very good at hiding it. It was about this time that Sophie began to stir, and I preoccupied myself with tending to her. When Dr. Hartsworth returned with Oscar, we sat down for supper. I brought Sophie hers afterwards, and our boy prattled on for some minutes about the men he had met outside of the feed store, who sat sharing a bottle of whiskey between them, and how they had told him stories of strange creatures in the tunnels of the mine, frightful spirits that swept through town, and all manner of terrible things. And all this before we could even say grace. Our baked beans and cornmeal grew cold on the table. Had they nothing good to say about this place, or was it all ghost stories? I asked him, but Oscar only gave me a fiendish smile. So I told the doctor that I hoped the next time he took my son to town, if I should let him, he will not allow him to listen to those sorts of stories, for I shouldn't like to put such dark fancies in his head. Yet the doctor said the queerest thing. It's just that one cannot escape such tales hereabouts. When I asked him why that is, he picked up his knife and fork and began to eat, chewing ponderously. Now, Lavinia, John Henry said, I'm sure you're likely to find such tales anywhere you go in the West. Isn't that right, doctor? Well, he said, still chewing slowly. I allow that might be true, but the tales here are of a particular nature. That is, it's said the mine is cursed. Cursed, I'm sure I said with some surprise. John Henry chortled. I did not share his amusement. I turned to the doctor and said, you sit here talking of curses. Aren't you a man of science? He nodded, his white beard twitching. I am. He lifted his napkin and dabbed it at the corner of his mouth in a delicate fashion. But there are things here, Mrs. Kane, that are more ancient than our medicine, that are perhaps more ancient even than us. John Henry began talking of how we had come to an ancient place, how old the mountains and the land, how unsullied the caves and depths of the mine, as if to explain the doctor's unnatural words with clarity and reason. I held my tongue and ate, allowing John to wax about the wilderness and its bounty for the duration of our meal. Yet I will be glad when Sophie is well and we may leave Dr. Hartsworth's house. I do not think I trust him. September 1st, 1869. 
John Henry told me it was a fool's errand, that I wouldn't find hide nor hair of him if I looked, that Emery is surely long gone from here, if ever he were here at all. When he asked me why I was so interested in finding him, I could see in his eyes he was thinking of that unfortunate time five years ago, as if to imply that my desire to find Emery was something more than it is. And I felt all at once ashamed, even if it is a shame over something that never happened, but which John Henry insists on believing. The bottom fact is, Emery came to my aid in my time of need, and if something has indeed happened to him, I would never forgive myself for abandoning him. I simply cannot believe he is as callous as John Henry says he is. I decided I ought to keep quiet about it in front of John Henry and temper my eagerness to find the answer to the mystery, if only so that he does not read too much into it. It all seemed to happen quite by luck. John Henry was at the mine learning his duties. Sophronia was resting, and the doctor had Oscar quite occupied with milking the cow or feeding the chickens, so I found myself walking into town for the very first time. Its brightness startled me. That is, there is no shade anywhere, and not even a wisp of cloud, so that the sun beams all through the sky, turning it the purest blue, and glares over the earth to make all its colors lighten and fade. Without any barrier between me and the sun but my flimsy bonnet, I could feel the sun as if it were inches above me. There is but one tree in town, a dead and blighted thing of a most ominous sort, with nary a leaf on its limbs. My hope was to find the assessor's office, not to make a claim, but to find the parcel of land which Emery had purchased when he came to Virgil. He had told us as much in his letters. I have bought a tract of land and am building my cabin upon it though it is not the type of land that will bear fruit. Being more rock than soil, it will do. I like to live simply and do not require much. This he wrote more than nine months ago. Unable to find such an office, however, I contented myself with exploring the town. Main Street proved to be much what I had expected, with a kind of rustic charm. A dirt road lined on either side by close-set wood buildings, grocery store, feed store, restaurants, an inn, a tailor shop, a blacksmith, a bank. One side, however, was unfinished, and I wondered at the abandoned construction, for I saw no laborers. Perhaps this was where the doctor's office was meant to be. Dr. Hartsworth had told me there was to be a small hospital or office that had been in the works for some time, but that construction had lately stagnated, which is why he has been practicing out of his own home. Just off Main Street, I came upon a two-story building, one of only two in town, emblazoned with the moniker Miss Shaw's in letters partially worn away by the wind. A woman sat on the veranda, her sweeping waves of black hair bore a contrast to my own dusty brown tresses, spooled and tucked away beneath my tattered bonnet. She sat smoking from a pipe, her lively colored skirts fanned out about her limbs, which were propped up on another chair as casual as you please. The dark gems of her eyes found me as I approached. 
thinking her the eponymous Miss Shaw, whom I assumed to be the proprietor of this establishment. I said hello and asked if I was right in my assumption that I had found a boarding house. She looked me up and down and said, New in town. I told her we had just arrived and that I would be happy to find room and board for me and my family if there were rooms available here. Claudia, for that is her name, she introduced herself later as Claudia Montagna, glanced behind her at the door, then sat up straight. No, not here, she said, her dark eyes searching me. Would you like my advice? Please, go back where you came from. The wind took up her words and hurled them into its howl. I held my hand over my bonnet to keep it on my head while my dress whipped around me. Yet it wasn't the wind that floored me so. Already it seems we are not wanted here. It is as if our shame from Boston has followed us. My daughter is ill, I told her when the gust of wind moved on. Are there truly no rooms? We were to stay with my brother-in-law, Emery Kane. He promised us a place at his cabin, but we cannot find him. She drew in a breath and stared at me. Emery Kane, she repeated. How relieved I was to hear someone say his name as if she had heard it before. Yes, I said with relief. Yes, Emery Kane is my brother-in-law. Land sakes, I was growing concerned when it seemed no one here had heard of him. Do you know him? Instead of answering, she stood abruptly. Claudia seemed the kind of woman who makes decisions quickly and commits her full confidence to them. Vamos, she said, come with me. She came down the steps and continued past me. I had no choice but to follow. She walked briskly, purposefully. She did not seem to care that the hem of her skirts whisked through the dirt. I raised my own skirt to hurry beside her, the air stinging my eyes and tickling my nostrils. I have never seen such a cacophony of dust as chokes the throat of this town, as if the earth should strangle it. A species of dread lives here, perturbing the wind with its howling. Yet when the wind blew eastward, it caught Claudia's spicy scent of anise and tobacco, a welcome reprieve from the smells I have grown so accustomed to. The sour odor of sweat, of sickness, and on the trail of horse dung and the musk of unwashed bodies crowded together in our wagon. There is a thing to be said for kindly smells. A foul odor can make a foul mood. We must have walked three miles through increasingly bleak desert before we arrived at the cabin. Its walls were composed of crude logs bearing up a roof of sod, but it looked in better condition than some of the others we had passed on our way. One fashioned from adobe brick and another of barrels that appeared to be splitting open, which even so seems a clever construction, as I have heard it is expensive to freight lumber here where the largest flora are sagebrush and cacti. The cabin before me, at least, was pleasantly sized, with two little windows that had shutters to close them. I wondered at first why Claudia had brought me here, and she further surprised me by saying, this is yours. 
I thought perhaps I had misunderstood, or that maybe her English wasn't as good as it had first seemed. When I asked her who the cabin belonged to, she said, no one, with a grave look on her face. Not anymore. Still, I was confounded by the idea of simply taking up residence on someone else's property. But Claudia explained further, there are many empty cabins now. People are packing up and leaving all the time, and this one she knew to be vacant. Strange and stranger. In a boom town, no less, why on earth should people be leaving rather than coming? It is the very opposite of what one might expect. We entered the quiet abode, which spoke of emptiness and abandonment. A threadbare, musty bed lurked in the corner. Metal tools hung along one wall below a series of yellowing animal skulls. There was a blackened hearth with a cast iron pot and candle mold set on a makeshift mantel. A dining table set with two stools, a tin plate, and a half-burned tallow candle. A crate that I suppose contained some of the former owner's possessions, and some clay jars on shelves that revealed themselves upon inspection to hold stale coffee, cornmeal, and dried beans. The windows admitted a modest pallor of sunlight, though they will have to be shuttered when cold nights come on, as there is no glass and they are open to the whims of nature. Claudia touched the jars and candle with a gentle sort of sweetness, a familiarity as one returning to fond memories. We sat at the table, and I found myself enjoying the society of another woman at long last. I came to find she worked at the establishment owned by Miss Rosemary Shaw, a shrewd woman with iron gray hair and a keen aptitude for business. Miss Shaw was said to have ears all about the town, though she kept her secrets to herself. Claudia has ears too, though, and she picks up on things. If I wanted gossip, I had only to ask her. Well, I did ask her. Of course I did. I asked her what she knew of Emery Kane. A haunting recognition came over her face. She listened attentively as I explained that we could not find any trace of him here, that he seems to have vanished, and it is terrible strange that no one seems to know of him. I have become suspicious, and I am getting ominous feelings from his disappearance. Claudia nodded and said, yes, he is gone now. But he was here, I implored. She hesitated, twisting her fingers about in her lap, and afforded me a curt nod. I could make neither heads nor tails of the look on her face, the nervousness that emanated from her. I asked her, as no one else has heard of him, how she knew he had been in Virgil. Because, Mrs. King, she told me, you are sitting in his house. The Dust Devils. What? Wainoga said out loud, unable to stop the word from slipping past her lips. She had to set the book on the ground beside her and stand up, just to get away from it. The air, rich with smoke, tickled her dry throat. Her skin itched and crawled. 
A sudden jab of pain behind her left eye reminded Wainoko that she might have a concussion from the fall. She longed in that moment to curl up with Mads and sleep, but she knew she shouldn't. Wasn't that what they said about concussions? Trying to stay awake, she turned over what she'd read. Cursed. That's what the old doctor had said, that this mine was cursed. Wainoka fought down a burst of anxious laughter. Just their luck to wind up trapped in a cursed mine. What did that mean, though? What was the curse? Stop it, she snapped, shaking her head. That was a ridiculous question. It was just the superstitions of people from the 19th century who didn't know any better. People who didn't have the scientific and worldly knowledge they had now. Probably every frontier town had a ghost story. That didn't make it real. Lavinia seemed like a rational enough person. Surely she would offer some explanation for this superstition later in her diary. Along with, Wainoka hoped, some idea about how to get out of here. A sound, like a grunt or a snort, sent Wainoka flinching back against the wall. She looked around, attuned to every whisper in the underground silence, and realized it was only Mad snoring, her neck craned back against the pillow of old rags. Wainoka rubbed a hand down her face. She had to calm down. She'd let the foolish beliefs in the diary get to her, and now she was jumping at shadows. She longed for the wide open desert. She was horrified to find herself impossibly missing the scorching sun, that blistering ball of flame they took such pains to avoid. It seemed so far away, beyond this wretched place. She looked at Mads and said, isn't that fucked up? Mads continued to snore. At least Sophie was getting better, thought Wainoka. And if Sophie could get better, then Mads could too. She just had to let her rest a while longer. Wainoka drifted back to where she'd been sitting and picked up the diary again, compelled by the cramped handwriting that filled its pages and the wide open spaces of Lavinia's world. Lavinia's Diary September 4th, 1869 We have begun settling into our new home, unpacking the wagon, cleaning the stale musk from the cabin, setting up beds for Sophie and Oscar. The cabin is imbued with the simple rusticity of the frontier. It is quaint and comfortable and almost pleasing. This respite, a place at last to call our own and rest our weary heads, will be worth the drudgery of the trail and the toil that lies ahead, without the amenities of civilized life that we enjoyed in Boston. It is simple and quiet. I walked a ways from the cabin to see what was there of the land, until I was far enough away that I seemed wholly surrounded by nothing but the desolation of nature and the sublimity of its lonesome beauty. The rocks exhibit shades of color I fancy come from the heavens themselves. 
I concluded at once that this was not an empty place as it at first appears, but that a divine presence lies just behind each crevice and cactus. In the seeming emptiness of this place, when the bustle of civilization is far removed, one can truly understand the spirit that underlies all creation, and that this land cannot belong to us in any but the most superficial sense, because it belongs only to itself. When I told John Henry of the land and the cabin, he was surprised and pleased. At first he thought I had managed to purchase a parcel of land on credit, and grew angry at my having attempted to do so without his consent. Yet when he discovered that we were indebted to no one, he seemed not to care why the land was ours, only that it was. And though I told him it was ours only because it had belonged to Emery, this troubled him only briefly, for soon he was smiling again at our good fortune for landing in this hospitable place. I always knew you were my lucky rabbit's foot, he said. He has hardly been around, however, for his work is long at the mine. I admit I was shocked to my core when Claudia told me where she'd brought me. Some rummaging turned up the land deed, and as she handed it to me, she said, This house once belonged to Emery Kane. Your name is Kane. Take it. It is yours now. This land is worthless anyway. You could not sell it for peanuts. I wondered at that. As it happens, a strangeness has plagued Virgil for some months now. Ever since an accident up at the mine, many residents have pulled foot and cleared out of town, leaving empty cabins and a dearth of workers for the company. When I asked Claudia of the accident, rather than give me a straight answer, she said only that we should avoid going out after dark. Before she left, she crossed herself and told me there are dangerous creatures about these parts. I can only imagine there must be in a wilderness such as this. Tomorrow, the children begin their schooling with the 12 or 15 other children who attend the schoolhouse in town. Sophronia is improving by the day. Her growing restlessness tells me she has had enough of lying down. Just this morning, as I was beating dust from my mother's beloved quilt, I saw the children chasing each other around, their laughter almost continuous. When they ceased their activities, Sophie's hair wisping free of her bonnet, Oscar with dirt on his knees, I found myself feeling terribly fond of them both. My heart is lightened with seeing Sophie's smile, the way her pink tongue presses through the space of her missing tooth and the sparkle of her deep blue eyes. I cannot imagine what I would have done. So much of our nourishment is dried and salted, we elected to trudge into town and assess what vittles are to be had in the grocery store. I was plum delighted to find Sophie hungry for once and thought her hard knocks must be at an end. Oscar dashed about ahead of us, kicking a rock across the ground, while Sophie held my hand primly. Mama, she said to me as we passed on to Main Street, why are there bells on all the doorways? Indeed, she was right. I had not noticed it before, but it is just as she said. As soon as I saw them, I could not imagine how I had missed them. 
Little silver bells hanging not just from the doorways of the shops, the boarding house, the post office, the two-story stone courthouse, but also from the doorway of each cabin and residence we had passed. Every last building had a bell over its entrance. Why this should disconcert me so, I cannot say. On the edge of town, rugged hills and mountains carve up the pale, dusty sky. One can see the buildings of the mine from here. It is so close. It is, after all, the town's lifeblood. Virgil would not exist without the Virgil Consolidated Mining Company. And out beyond the edges of Virgil loom strange, rocky hills, toxic plants, and evil cacti. Nothing here is familiar. Indeed, Virgil seems to be a lone outpost amid a vast wilderness. I suppose the bells are so they can hear when someone is coming, yet it seems strange to me why there should be one on every building. Perhaps the people here do not like to be caught unawares. Sophie asked me if we would put a bell on our door as well, gazing up at me with those eyes of deepest blue, wide and guileless. I do not think I would like having a bell on our door, jangling intrusively every time one of us goes in or out. It seems a dreadful intrusion on the quiet. Claudia will know what it means. I must ask her of the bells, why they are there, though I fear I may encounter her reticence once again. September 6th, 1869. Today I secured us a goat and two sheep. I attempted also to identify what sort of crops might grow on our land, only to be stymied by the grocer's laughter. All hard pan out here, he said. You won't get naught but weeds. Even the sheep seem resentful of the lack of good eating. Their eyes seem to accuse me so. If only I could explain to them in a language they might understand that we are all making the best of things. Perhaps my stroking them puts them at ease. I often find the company of animals a balm unlike any other, a contentment one simply cannot find among people. Animals have an utter honesty and sincerity about them. They are incapable of the lies and manipulations that contaminate human society. It is too late in the season, besides, to do much planting. Winter will be upon us in short order. Yet the days remain hot even now, as in the thick of summer, and excessive dry. There is but little rain and nary a cloud to blot out the overbearing sun. By this time of year, Boston would be cool and rainy, the air ripe with the soft moisture of the sea. I filled my bucket with water from the pump outside of the grocery store, and my arms strained as I lumbered back down the street with it, as well as the sack of feed thrown over my shoulder. Others were about, and I heard hushed conversation as I passed. Perhaps they did not know I could hear them. Or perhaps I have acute hearing. Help the poor girl out, said one. That's one of the new ones, the canes said his companion, and they turned away from me. I lowered the bucket and set myself down for a spell, the sun hot on my back like all fire. I swatted flies from the sweetness of my sweat. I felt alone as a body can feel.
It was just as if the other people about town were only flies buzzing away from me. It reminds me of Boston, in the latter days of our shame, when we had become pariahs. If it had only been the bucket or the feed, I wouldn't have had such trouble, and perhaps I ought to have made two trips after all. But now that I had both, I was determined to get them back to the cabin, and as I was all on my own, it was a double burden upon me. Just as I was beginning to gather myself to continue, I found that I was inside of the boarding house, and I wondered if Claudia was in. It took me another few minutes to bring myself to its porch, not because the way was so very far, but because I was continually and stubbornly convincing myself that it was more prudent to simply continue home. Yet the notion of a brief respite from the toil, to call on the one person in town who has shown me an ounce of kindness, seemed to me a merry prospect. So I set down my bucket and feed on the porch and went inside. The parlor was more lushly appointed than the building's exterior suggested. There sat a scrolled velvet sofa against elegantly patterned wallpaper, which appeared in a French style to my unworldly eyes. Two young women in scandalously little clothing sat there with drinks in hand. Behind a counter stood the woman I took to be Miss Rosemary Shaw. So used to plainness, I was quite struck by this woman, who I can only describe as adorned. Fur on her shoulders, a pair of minuscule spectacles on her delicate nose, a feathered hat on her silver curls, striking jade earrings dangling from her ears. Though heavyset and imposing, she was nevertheless a handsome woman. She turned to me on my arrival and appraised me quickly, then said, Looking for work. Don't worry, dear. There are so many men in this town and so few women. No one will bat an eye at those homely looks. I told her I was looking only for Claudia. Bernadette. Miss Shaw snapped at one of the girls lounging on the sofa. Up with you. Go and retrieve her. Miss Shaw's keen eyes turned sideways to me as the girl leapt from the couch and bounded up the narrow staircase. You're lucky we're slow this time of day. Claudia is quite popular. She came down, just as lovely as ever, wearing a plain white gown. Her hair was pinned up today, with loose curls hanging around her rouged face. She seemed surprised to see me here. Miss Shaw went off somewhere else, and Bernadette returned to her companion on the sofa, who had been holding her drink. With a tilt of her head, Claudia indicated that we had better step out onto the porch, so we did. My bucket and bag of feed became quite apparent at our feet, so I told her I had stopped for a short rest before carrying my burdens the three miles back, and had desired to thank her for bringing me to Emery's cabin. She glanced behind her, though we had shut the door on our way out, then looked back at me and said, let me help you. I attempted to decline. It would be far too generous of her to help me all the way back to the cabin, although she was at work, but she told me she was not busy right now, and she would very much enjoy a walk out of doors. So Claudia took the sack of feed while I hefted the bucket, and slowly we made our way down the dusty road. There was nothing to do but talk as we went. 
I didn't want to trouble her or frighten her off, so I did not ask her again about what happened to Emery, though I very much wanted to. To my delight, after correcting my pronunciation of her name, she taught me a few Spanish words. Let me see if I can remember them. Mantequilla is butter. Gracias is thank you. Amore is love. She offered to teach me more if I ever came round again. Miss Shaw is a strange sort of woman, isn't she? I said, thinking back on the peculiar way she had greeted me. She goes about the world with dollar signs in her eyes, said Claudia, who then proceeded to tell me about some of the other people in town. There is the minister, whose name I am sorry to say I have quite forgotten already. The tailor, Mr. Branson, who could frequently be found sitting outside of his shop with his hat pulled over his eyes so that one could not tell whether or not he was snoozing. Mr. Warrant and his family, one of the more powerful about town due to his high position in the mining company. Mr. Faraday, the postman, who was the friendliest sort of man you could meet. Mr. Pavlovsky, the grocer, and his wife, Josephine. I asked her of the schoolteacher, whom I had met only briefly when bringing the children round to the schoolhouse, and Claudia told me that Miss Delilah Barnes was well known for being charitable and accommodating, though perhaps due to spending her time in the company of children, given to flights of fancy. The walk was so much pleasanter with Claudia beside me sharing the load. The cabin lay not far ahead of us when the distinct jingle of a bell shrilled nearby as a woman exited her home with a bundle of washing. I couldn't help myself. May I ask, why are there all these bells? She said the most peculiar thing. The bells are so that we can hear when spirits are approaching. When you hear the bells at night, you know los fantasmas are about. This must be the quaint superstition of the town. It reminds me of those awful stories I have heard about poor souls who are inadvertently buried alive. How some will install bells above the grave with a string that goes down to the coffin, so that if one awakens to find himself wrongfully interred, he may tug on the string to ring the bell and signal whoever might hear. The thought sends a horrible shiver all through me. How awful, the notion of waking in the dark of a little coffin, closed in by six feet of dirt, hoping that someone will hear your ringing before you truly perish. When we arrived at the cabin, I invited Claudia in for tea, but she regretfully declined, intimating that she must return to work before Miss Shaw discovered her missing. I couldn't begrudge her this, though I was sad to see her go. I do miss the society of other women and the long conversations I once shared with my sister and cousins, so very unlike the brief and efficient conversations I share with John Henry of late. By the time I had tidied up the cabin, fed the sheep, milked the goat, and churned several pounds of butter, it was just at the hour to retrieve the children. I walked to the schoolhouse, overcome with the realization that this was the longest I had been without my children in shouting distance for many months after being on the trail in such close quarters. Making sure no one was around to see, I lifted my skirt and ran the last half mile to the school, wondering if Sophronia was still feeling well, wondering if Oscar was behaving himself. But all was well, 
Sophronia and Oscar both were lively and pleased with their new school. The grip of dread that clutched my heart loosened. Miss Delilah Barnes, a young woman of perhaps 22 years, with a comely face and wide-set eyes, her gait somewhat hindered by a limp under her calico dress, came over and told me I have two very bright children. I bade the children thank her and told her we regularly practice reading and writing with our Bible. She seemed pleased to hear this and encouraged us to continue these studies. As we walked home, I asked Sophie what she thought of the school and the other children she had met there. She said that Peter Warrant, in particular, was a perfect gentleman to her. The boy is 13 or 14, I believe. And I told her that the Warrants are said to be well-to-do, and she could do worse than the Warrant boy. But that isn't something for you to think about just yet, I reminded her. What you ought to think about is what you would like to do with yourself when you are an educated woman. This sent Sophronia into a period of quiet contemplation. She is a most thoughtful child. All the while, Oscar was ahead of us calling out, Watch me! as he walked with his arms outstretched at his sides and his eyes closed. Every so often, he turned back to see if we were watching. I regained Sophie's attention. And Oscar, did he make any friends today? She seemed hesitant to respond, but said this. You know how he likes to play by himself. I called Oscar to come back beside us and bade him tell me the names of the classmates he played with today. He tucked his lips in and rolled his eyes around as if he was thinking very carefully. I don't know any of them, he said. If he was to be spending each day in their company, though, I knew he must get to know them soon enough. I said, Miss Barnes let you out to play between lessons. With whom did you spend your time? He grew still and sulky and said, I played with Charles. Now I grabbed the boy roughly and demanded he tell the truth, which is that if he did not play with the other children, he played with no one, for Charles is dead. He has been dead since the moment he came into this world, and no amount of pretending will change this. At times, I find I cannot even stand to look at Oscar, for he looks just as Charles would have had he ever grown. There would be two of them as twins. Instead, there is only one playing the part of them both and insisting upon his dead brother's presence as if he were still alive. The boy was punished for his lies, though guilt troubled me through the rest of the evening. When John Henry returned, I felt I had not seen him in an age. Though we had spent so much time together on the trail, it is remarkable the distance now between us. We have hardly spoken here. The trail has led to a vast wilderness of silence. Yet we did talk at last when he returned. I shall try to render our conversation as accurately as I can, but there was a great deal we talked about, and I fear I will leave some of it out of this account. We sat on stools outside, enjoying the cool night breeze. In the thick darkness, there were but few lights making orange glows of the cabin windows in our view, like strange beacons out yonder. It was quiet and peaceful. The stars left their dazzling mark overhead. 
John Henry smoked his pipe, releasing a warm tobacco smell, and I asked him what it is like to work in the mine. He thought about it some, and I could tell he was composing his words in his head. I'll tell you what it is like, he finally said. Dark, hot, narrow. Not the sort of place you would ever hope to find yourself, Lavinia. And if you did, surely you would lose your way in those many tunnels. One must be careful of that, and of falling rocks and unstable supports. But that is saying nothing of the labor itself. Demanding work, grinding away at the mountain. What sustains us, however, is what may lie hidden right under our own noses. They've found silver here before, 20,000 tons, if you can believe it. And they find more every day, though often in such small amounts as to hardly matter. Traces, that is, merely traces. All we need is to find another large strain of ore. They say this could be the next Comstock load. His eyes gleamed as I bade him explain to me what the Comstock load was. Also here in Nevada, with many bonanzas under its belt, and tens of thousands of tons in gold and silver. Nothing worthwhile comes easily, he said as he refilled his pipe, moving carefully as if all movement pained him. I reached out for his shoulder, but he flinched away from my attempted ministrations. Still, I could see in the pinched lines of his face, the hunch of his back, the way he rested his elbow on his knee to hold the pipe, the effects of his suffering. All that danger and toil, I said, and you don't even know whether you'll find silver or just more rocks. We will find more silver. The tone of his voice brooked no argument. There is plenty of silver here. It is only a matter of finding it, removing it and refining it, and I plan to be the one to find it. Some of these men, for all their bravado, don't have much adventure in them. They sweat in their corners of the mine, never considering what a little initiative could result. Here I did not favor his tone over much. His eyebrows had drawn together, and the curve of his mouth soured as if disgusted by those he believes beneath him. He continued, there are tunnels they avoid, for superstitious reasons, if you can believe it. I told them, how do you expect to find the mother load if you're not willing to look very hard? They may not be willing, but I believe I may find a ready strain of ore if I try one of these unspoiled tunnels. I could have that find all to myself. And you believe you will be the one to find it? I asked him with a little smile. A man with no mining experience who comes right in and whisks away the silver from under their noses? Doesn't it sound a touch idealistic? You laugh, he said. But look. It is quite simple. I will ascertain the layout of the mine and identify the places most likely to remain as yet untouched, and thus most likely to contain strains of undiscovered silver. Before I declare my discovery, I will pluck out the largest nuggets I can find and safely bear them home with me. Only then will I share my find with the company and receive a pretty penny as a bonus, I imagine. By then, we might abscond with our fortune to less unpleasing lands, where no one will ever know where our silver came from. It sounds like stealing, 
I said. He flicked his hand through the air as if to wave away the thought and said, the company will have all the rest of it and will never know any is gone. They cannot possibly miss what they never truly had, can they? Why should I give over all of it to the company if I am the one who discovers it, if they wouldn't even have it without me? Rightly, it should be mine, and I am generously allowing the company to take the lion's share while I divest them of some small scraps for myself. I fail to see how that is stealing. You fail to see a good many things. What is that supposed to mean? You like to see what you like to see, that's all. If it is good for you, then you see it. If it is not, you find yourself mysteriously blind. John Henry laughed and said, I see as sharply as an eagle, but I do not act on all that I see. One must be shrewd about these things. One must, mustn't one, I said playfully. You are mocking me. Perish the thought. His eyes twinkled, and somehow there was laughter in my voice, even as I spoke my misgivings about this serious business. He has the habit of turning things around so that I myself make light of the very matters that trouble me most. He laid a kiss upon my brow and said, all will be well. Such is his mantra when he is so sure of himself. All will be well, all will be well. How easy it is to believe him. Still, I asked, isn't it dangerous going off on your own in the mine? That isn't for you to worry about, he said, taking my hand and kissing it gently. His whiskers tickled my knuckles. It is a dangerous business, yes. Must be why Emery ran off. He couldn't handle the work. Won't he be sorry when I strike it rich? I opened my mouth then. I knew not what to say. But he continued, almost to himself before I could speak. It will all be worth it, he said. And if it isn't? He pulled away from me as if I had slapped him. You don't trust me? I pursed my lips. It would not do to argue. If this is just another of his get-rich-quick schemes, then like the others, when it falls apart, we will move on somewhere else and try again, always reaching for something forever out of reach. It is nice to think about, even if I know it is a fantasy. He turned away from me and looked out into the darkness as he smoked. I remembered Claudia's admonition not to be out after dark, and I found myself prickling with unease. Even with the cabin's open door at our backs, I felt immediately exposed to all the unfamiliar elements of the desert. I stood up, but John Henry's voice stopped me from going inside. You know what makes us different from them. I did not ask who he meant by them, but I surmised his implication. We are willing to do what it takes, whatever it takes. I spend each day in the dark underground. The narrow tunnels echo with endless clanking. We are all of us covered in a layer of grime and sweat. And at all times, we are aware of the mountain of rock just over our heads, liable to collapse on us if it pleases the devil. I begin to forget what the sun feels like on my skin. But I am willing. For all that, I am willing. 
I will go to the farthest reaches of the mine, into the deepest tunnels where no man would dare to go to provide for my family. And I should hate if my own family was ungrateful for that. A sick feeling of shame coursed through me, but beneath it, somewhere as deep inside of me as those distant tunnels in the depths of the mine, I could not help but wish he had found some other form of work. Though I knew it was a selfish thought, for wasn't the work he was doing now finally honest? Was that not what I had wanted of him? Fearing if I remained out there any longer, some of this awfulness would come spilling out of my bone box, I left him out there without another word and came inside to sit and write. Later. What is the time? Late. All is dark, John Henry snoring beside me. A waning moon sits in its sea of stars beyond the roof. I woke to the sound of bells, somewhere to the north, if my ears do not deceive me. Though I try not to let Claudia's words disturb me, I cannot help thinking that Los Fantasmas are about, and I have had to settle my mind by lighting a candle and writing before I can fall asleep again. After our conversation, John Henry and I lay in bed for a while before we slept. I curled into his solid presence beside me and found myself wanting to remain like that for eternity in the warmth and dark of him. He spoke softly, his breath brushing strands of hair over my ear. I told him I was concerned for him in that mine, and that is only why I am so agitated. I had heard of an accident that occurred some months ago. But he shushed me, running his calloused fingers over my cheek in a gesture of intimacy that I had not even realized I had been craving dearly. He told me not to worry, that I was prone to upsetting myself when I worried, and he hated to see me like that. He confessed he had been worried for me these last weeks, worried I might fall into that same despair that took hold of me after Oscar was born, and Charles born dead should something have happened to Sophronia. We clung to each other there in the dark, in the wide and unforgiving desert of the frontier. The bells have gone quiet. I wonder who has been about this late. The Dust Devils Wainoka set down the diary. Her hands were cold. She rubbed them together close to the fire as she looked up at the bell that hung, still and silent, beneath the red-painted figure. Superstition, she told herself. Nothing but superstition. She watched the flow of smoke leak out into the tunnel behind the bell, filling it with a gray haze. Anything might lie in the darkness beyond, might come creeping out of the depths. Stop it she told herself, and yet she couldn't take her eyes from the painted figure, the sharp lines that radiated outward. Rather than finding answers in the diary, Wainoka felt she had even more questions. What were the phantoms that Claudia had spoken of? What was she not telling Lavinia? Part of Wainoka wanted to tear down the bell from where it hung, its very presence seeming to invoke whatever had plagued the town of Virgil back in the 1860s. 
But another part of her, the part that hissed in the shadows of her mind, feared if she took it down, they would have no way of knowing if the phantoms were approaching. She laughed at herself to relieve some of the tension. Her head throbbed. She swallowed dryly, checked how much water she had left. Maybe two swigs, probably just backwash. She had the sudden desire to crawl onto that moldy bed with Mads, wrap herself around her partner, bury her face in that wild frazzle of hair, let the curls tickle her nose. Like the time someone had broken into the burned-out apartment they'd been squatting in, stolen all the tools they'd managed to collect. Mads was on him like a rabid dog. Might have bitten him in the jugular, if Wainoka hadn't woken and cried out, fumbling around in the dark, distracting them both. The guy threw Mads off of him, trained his gun on Wainoka. Mads backed off. He punched her and fled with his loot. Later, lying on the bare floor wrapped around each other, Wainoka asked why Mads bothered to keep her around. She wasn't clever. She wasn't athletic. She wasn't quick on her feet. She had always played by the rules, colored within the lines. I'm dead weight. I needed someone to talk to, said Mads. You're good for conversation. I'm not even that talkative. Mads patted Wainoka's cheek roughly and sat up. The deep socket around her eye was already turning black, giving her the look of a skull. That's why you're so perfect. Great, thanks. Hey. Mads trapped her gaze and held it. The lid of her blackening eye drooped heavier than the other. I'm not lying. Chatty Cathy is not a good conversationalist. A good conversationalist knows when to shut up. I guess that's what I'm good for, then. Shutting up. Io de puta, Mads grumbled under her breath, then lay back down, and they both shut up for a while. But they had huddled close together to protect each other from the world and all the gun-toting assholes in it, an intimacy that didn't happen often, but that Wainoka craved. She wished she could wrap herself around Mads and offer the same kind of comfort. But she felt she had no comfort to give. Not when she could barely calm herself. We'll get out of here, she murmured to Mads' sleeping form. You and me, just like Lavinia. Lavinia's Diary September 7th, 1869 Having thought we had left all those trail graves behind and found ourselves in a place more suited to life, I could not have imagined death marking Virgil so soon after our arrival. At every turn, the trail promised to make an end of us, yet we prevailed. Now a man is dead, and not in any natural sort of way. It was Olive Blackburn who first intimated to me the news. Our paths crossed going and coming as she returned from town and I went toward it. She and Chester are our nearest neighbors. I was at first delighted to find that another woman lived so close to us and had determined to find a friend in her. But I fear, after our strange conversation, that this is not to be. She was white as a ghost, so I called over to see if she was quite well, and she told me that Jeremiah Frost, a miner, had been killed. 
By what? By whom, I asked her, but she would not or could not say. She said he was killed in a most horrible way, just like the others, and was found this morning all bloodless and cold. By and by the color returned to her cheeks, and she grew more angry than shocked, her eyes alighting on me. We are still being punished, she said with venom. All for his foolishness. You and your lot will be the end of us all. Before I could ask her meaning, she hurried away from me with a sort of mad fury in her eyes. The shrill of the bell above her door as she slammed it shut sent a bolt of lightning down my spine. I was rather more confused by her reaction than upset, so I was undeterred in my trek to town. Though I knew I could not continue wasting time walking to and from town each day, with so much yet to be done at home, I have been steadily acquiring supplies that will hold us over for a longer stretch. What I heard in town, however, only added to the mystery of Olive's unsettling claims. The grocer, Mr. Pavlovsky, said that Mr. Frost's body had been found utterly drained of blood, white and withered as a skeleton and he crossed himself as he said it. What could do such a thing? I asked him, to which he only shook his head and mumbled something about the curse of Virgil, this haunted town. By now I was growing quite uneasy and ever curiouser about the matter. Yet still I thought this was but wild fancy, the same sort of superstition that brings one to ornament his doorway with a bell. If he was killed, then surely we should find what man or beast has done it and hold him or it accountable. Yet Mr. Pavlovsky was not alone in his spooky superstitions. All others I passed whispered among themselves such phrases as, not another one, and death be on us all. When I stopped in at the post office to send a letter to my sister informing her of our arrival, I asked Mr. Faraday, the postman, what news he had of the unfortunate Jeremiah Frost. Was he killed by man or animal? Neither, he said, and the sincerity and honesty in his voice oppressed me with dread. Then how did he die? I asked him. It's been said he was killed. I killed by what it is comes out of the dark. We have no name for it. Man or beast it cannot be, more like a devil. All I know is this, it comes out of the dark and leaves men all empty and covered in strange wounds, like they've been used for a pincushion. Forgive the messy writing, my hands will not stop trembling. It was Mr. Faraday's words that convinced me this was something more than superstition. Whatever had happened to Jeremiah Frost was a phenomenon that had previously occurred in Virgil and that has no explanation. Can it be the devil lives here in God's country? Or is it the work of some dangerous beast that hunts by night? The sort of creatures that survive in this desolate place must be frightful, must be the sort that could kill a man, like a scorpion. It is the unknowing that I find unendurable. If one could only identify the animal who hunts in this manner, or the madman whose weapon is a thousand poisoned darts, then I might at least put my mind at ease in understanding the nature of the death. 
Yet the answer is inscrutable as Emery's whereabouts, mysterious as the ether. As I was making my way down Main Street in the direction of the boarding house, that I should call it that even now knowing its true nature, I stumbled across the tailor sitting outside of his shop with his hat low over his eyes. Yet he sat up straight as I passed and said hello, as if he hadn't been sleeping at all. He wore a trim gray suit and occasionally pulled out his pocket watch as if he had forgotten the time he only just checked. Or perhaps he only wanted to show off the beautifully engraved backing and gold chain. His mustache was carefully groomed, curled up at the corner so that it looked as if he was always smiling. Indeed, his pond green eyes twinkle merrily as if he is always smiling, even when he is not. His name is Rutherford Branson. He seemed delighted to meet me. I do love to see a new face about town, especially one as lovely as yours. His words were so kind, I cannot help but write them here. I have never been the sort of woman men fawn over. That's my sister, Emma. She has always been the beautiful one. I have been described as somewhat plain, with a hard jaw and a long chin. My mother used to tell me I had an unfriendly face. This distressed me when I was young, for I tried so hard to be pleasant and friendly, but my efforts always seemed in vain if my very face contradicted my behavior. Once, I remember my mother telling me that no man wants to marry a woman with an unfriendly face, and I will have to settle for whatever suitor comes around. Luckily, John Henry was that suitor, and I happened to fall in love with him. I quickly found that Mr. Branson likes to talk. He told me about all the rips and holes these miners manage to work into their clothes, and how all the unmarried men must come to him, for they have no wives to mend their clothing for them. It is a good business, he said. Talking with the lively and pert Mr. Branson raised my spirit some, yet still I could not shake my distemper, and I asked him if he had heard news of the dead man this morning. Oh, yes, nasty business he said, no longer seeming to smile. But we ain't so easy to run out of town, huh? Whatever it is killing them miners, I'll be danged if it gets to me. Mayhap these men ought not to be meddling in places they ain't welcome. But, well, the work is good and I cannot complain. Tis only in a place like this that such a middling tailor can get so much business. He laughed, and I tried to share in his mirth, but a black dread was creeping through me like a tangle of vines, reaching up to strangle my heart at the very thought of whatever it is killing them miners. I bade him farewell, and he said he hoped I would stop by for a chat whenever I was in town, as I would be happy to see your lovely face again and hear your musical voice. Despite the pleasantness of Mr. Branson's words, I remained utterly chilled, but I did not immediately set off for home. Once more, I thought if anyone should have some answers, it must be Claudia who had so far provided me the clarity that no one else has. Clarity that Emery had existed here once. Clarity about the bells. If I am to be perfectly honest, her presence comforts me. And if nothing else, I thought that calling on her might soothe my ill feelings. Well, 
When I called on her, what I discovered there distracted me quite from the matter of Jeremiah Frost, even if it only added to my present discomfort. How horrible it is to sit here alone with my sewing as I mend John Henry's clothes, thinking of that dead miner, picturing all manner of terrible things which might have happened to him. No, I must not dwell on it, or I will go mad. But I have spent too much time in writing already, so I shall continue my tale after I have finished my mending. Later. I hadn't thought I would write of it, but I feel I must, if I am to keep an honest account of my experiences. What I discovered when visiting Claudia makes me feel quite the fool that I should have missed something so obvious. The visit began well enough. Claudia was less surprised to see me today, even pleased, though the same cannot be said of Miss Rosemary Shaw, who harumphed when I came in, as if she'd been hoping for someone else when she heard the bell above the door. Certainly, she was hoping for a client. I should have found it strange how quiet the boarding house is during the morning and early afternoon hours, for it isn't a boarding house at all, of course. Claudia and I had tea in her room. The warmth of it stole into my body through my fingers and through the sweet vapors as I inhaled them. When I asked her if she had heard of what happened to Jeremiah Frost, she nodded gravely and said, I told you it was dangerous after dark. He is not the first. I asked her if she knew what had killed him, and she told me that she did not know for certain, though once, when the same tragedy happened before, she had managed to glimpse a strange shadow moving through the night. A shadow she had not been able to convince anyone else she had seen, but which she believed to be proof of the existence of Los Fantasmas. She told me, I notice more things than those whose work does not keep them awake at such hours. I asked what sort of work she did that should keep her up such hours, and at first she did not answer, but only gave me a coy sort of smile, as if pitying me that I did not know. How could I have been so blind? I had assumed all this time that she did laundry for the boarders. Here I thought I was having tea in a boarding house, when it turns out I was enjoying the company of an adventuress in a brothel. She seemed most amused by the red flush that came over my cheeks as I babbled in flummoxed embarrassment. I nearly spilled my tea in my haste to rise from the little table at which we sat as I looked about me with fresh eyes and saw Claudia, my only friend in Virgil, for what she really is. I managed to stammer an apology before dashing away, passing Miss Shaw as I bolted down the stairs or rather, Madam Shaw, and hurried home. Later again. I seem to be unable to quit my diary today. It is only writing, I suppose, which can calm a disturbed heart. When John Henry returned from the mine, we supped in good humor so as not to upset the children, though Oscar told me he heard at school of a gruesome murder in the early hours of this morning before dawn, and I persuaded him it was only rumors. From the way Sophronia looked at me, I believe I did not quite convince her of such. Later, when the children were abed, John Henry and I finally had a chance to talk about Jeremiah Frost. 
He said he didn't know the young miner well, and that the others were solemn and quiet today, which was to be expected after a tragedy involving one of their own. But didn't you ask them what has done it? No, he told me. John Henry is not curious enough to ask them such a thing. He doesn't want to know. He wants only to get on with his own business. If anyone truly knows the nature of his death, I imagine it would be Frost's fellow miners. I only wish John Henry would pursue answers as vehemently as he pursues silver. As darkness fell around us, closing us into our little cabin until morning, I felt I should have listened to Claudia when I first met her. We ought to leave, I said. This place is cursed. John Henry stubbornly refused the idea. Where would we go when we have only just arrived? The idea is pure madness, and how do you think Sophronia will fare back on another long journey so soon? Do you want to get back on the trail? That gave me pause. The very notion of resuming those rough, dreary days in the hot, stuffy air of the wagon, jostled constantly from one side to the other, made me ill. I looked to Sophie, her narrow chest rising and falling as she succumbed to sleep, and I kept my voice a whisper so as not to wake her. How do you think Sophronia will fare if we should be killed by some rabid creature? I decided it would be better not to call it a devil or a phantom, lest John Henry think me truly mad. At this, a look of anger came over John Henry's face. He balled his hand into a fist, and with his skin still covered in black grime from the mine, he hadn't bothered to wash up before supper. He was quite a sight, almost feral. Isn't that why I'm here, he said. Isn't it my job to protect you? How can you protect us when you're always away in the mine? He slammed his fist down on the table, and the children stirred. We need money, he said, his eyes wounded. Money we don't have, money I make to provide for us. Do you begrudge me that? As I went to the children to urge them back to sleep, John Henry stepped away. The children were still half asleep anyway and drifted off again quickly. I turned to find John Henry pushing a long gun into my face. Here, he said. Take it. This is all the protection we need. One good shot will take down anyone, man or animal. Reluctantly, I took the gun. It was heavy in my hands, the weight of life and death residing within it. I won't be like my coward of a brother, said John Henry. I won't turn tail and run. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat Books podcasts. Also, check out the background episodes where we interview our authors and have them participate in fun writing challenges. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. <laughs>